Howdy folks, today we're going to go on a journey from combat photography to Adobe to the dawn of photography podcasting, all rolled into one, right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We spend literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Nutz, and if you enjoy this content, consider lending your support on buymeacoffee.com forward slash camera shake to help us create more exciting episodes for you. Your support really does mean the world to us. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the combat photographer, the legend behind This Week in Photo, the man with a voice as smooth as velvet. Give it up for Mr. Frederick Van Johnson. Frederick, how are you, man? <laughs> Thank you for that intro. That was fantastic. Now, now I'm, I'm embarrassed to use my voice because it's smooth as velvet, velvet apparently. <laughs> it absolutely That's is. Awesome. And I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. I'm jealous of your, your voice, your accent. Mine is boring compared to yours. So. <laughs> I really, well, I mean, uh, I'm never really sure about my accent. I think nobody's ever sure about my accent because it's such a, like, it's such a mix of different things, you know? Yeah, yeah, but it's cool. It's cool. It's like this boring American <laughs> accent that I have. I'm trying to get rid of it. <laughs> oh well, you know, I tried. Yeah, I worked hard on getting rid of my German accent. Actually, I didn't really. <laughs> it still shines through <laughs> once in a while, but you know, keep it. Anyway, keep man, it. how are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat. Uh, this is, you know, you and I chat. I mean, we were chatting before we started recording, and my, you know, we, you and I, I think some people you can just talk for hours and hours with. And we are those people, you know, that you know, we can just pick a topic and just vamp about it for forever and ever. So I'm excited. I'm excited to to be on the hot seat and be interviewed by you. So, yeah, oh, yeah, time. it's absolutely it's been a long time coming. And, uh, and of course, I was on uh, on your podcast a little while ago, which was super fun. And, you know, if people want to check that out, um, I'll put the link in the description um, and in the show notes, obviously, you know, check it out. Um, but. Most people know you as the host of This Week in Photo. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing that really fascinates me is I want to go back a little bit further. And um, I want to talk to you about your your, sort of, your past or your origins as a combat photographer. Because uh, sure. I know that you used to be in the U.S. Air Force as a combat photographer. Mm -hmm. How did you get to do that? And, and what was that like? Yeah, I, I would love to paint a... An, an exciting story of my journey into becoming, you know, be joining the the combat photo team or the combat camera team as we were. And, but it wasn't that exciting, right? It was, it was basically luck of the draw, to be honest with you, with some, with, I guess, some, some right man for the right job kind of algorithmic decision-making thrown in there. So becoming a photographer in the Air Force especially when you're enlisted, like I was, I was, you know, enlisted versus officer, right? Officers, of course, have more control and insight into their path in the military. Enlisted people are a little bit less in control of what's going to happen to you. And in basic training, you know, with the, the my first step in the military, basic training was uh, fun, but you get to this point in basic where they're assigning jobs and who's going to do what, and they assign those jobs based on this this 
universal sort of aptitude test that all enlistees take before they join the military. And it kind of determines where you're strong at, where you're weak at, what kind of jobs you should do, you know, that kind of thing. And apparently I scored high on the creative side. So they were going to make me a journalist in the the armed forces sort of news organization, like a combat journalist. And I'm going out there writing stories about everything. I thought that was amazing. And then they switched it to photojournalist and gave me orders. You know, my 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 first base was going to be in Minot, North Dakota, at the, at the base up there. And, you know, basically that's a the frozen tundra with missile silos buried underground, right? And that's the mission is to maintain and keep all that stuff running properly. That did not sound fun. So I wasn't I wasn't that happy about it. I was like, yeah, two years. Okay, you know, I'm going to boldly go where no Johnson has gone before and go check out my, my not North Dakota. Uh, then at the last minute, I got orders to Tokyo. Instead, I got diverted. And they're like, oh, Johnson, you're you're not going to Minot anymore. You're going to Yokota Air Base in Japan. And I'm like, okay, that sounds great. Yeah, it was a different kind of apprehension at that point. Because I'm like, I don't speak Japanese. I don't write Japanese. Definitely don't look Japanese. So how am I going to get along in Japan for two years? Turns out, best experience of my life. The combat photojournalism part of it came where, just real quick, when you join, when you join, um, at least then, this was a while ago, right? So I'm sure things have evolved and changed since then. But when you joined back then, you go in as a base level photographer and a military base, for those who don't know, at least a U.S. military base is a self-contained, basically a town, in some cases, a large town with a mission. And it's populated by military people. There's barracks there. There's single-family homes there for married personnel. There's buildings for offices. There's a runway for jets, all the things, stores, the little mall, McDonald's, gas stations, all of that, you know, gym, everything. We had sports teams that were competing against each other, all that. So it's a really cool, self-contained little town. Our mission as the combat camera group was in, in times of uh, let's call it, you know, non-war when there's no war going on or there's no overall military mission happening. The day-to-day mission was to support the base photographically, kind of like any newspaper that that's in operation today or, you know, there's not many of those, but any any news gathering operation, something happened in, let's say something happened in, you know, a car crashed on base and the, the law enforcement team needed would need documentation or photographic documentation of the accident. They'd call us, we'd go out, take a photo or take several photos and provide it to them as the customer. Um, uh, other cases, a general may need a portrait. So he'd come in uh, into our facilities. We had a studio set up. We do the portrait process, print, give the general the photo. Forensic photography. I remember my first my first week at Yakota, the hazing week. You know, my first job was they sent me to the base hospital because some guy had died playing basketball, had a heart attack or something, and they had to do they they do a mandatory aut- autopsy for some reason. And they were doing the autopsy, and I was the the forensic photographer at that point, taking photos of every little bit that they cut out of the sky. So that was my hazing, you know. Okay, will Will Frederick throw up on this thing? 
So, you know, it, when you're when you're base level photographer, your duties, which is a good thing, your duties could range anywhere from sports photography to portrait to forensic to investigative to whatever, whatever's needed, group photography, all of that. And then during that, you're learning how to be a photographer, you're training, you're understanding light. We were doing we're there was no digital back when I was in the military. So we're processing and printing our own film. So all of that from soup to nuts, we were even rolling our own film into the canisters. So, and then you graduate from that to the next level when your superiors deem you worthy. And that next level is combat photojournalism, where you then deploy out to different places in conflict zones or whatever. And those are the guys that would sit back you know, with their feet up on the desk while us little airmen ran around and did forensic photography and all that stuff. Those were the, the cool kids that got to sit back and crack jokes all day until something important happened that needed their photojournalistic skills. So, and that's that's kind of the flow, you know, and that's the, the path of ascension. Once you reach photojournalism or the photojournalist level, that's kind of where you, you hang out. You're a photojournalist for life after that, for the most part. You know, even when you get out, you still consider yourself one of those guys. So yeah, it was fun. That That's a, that's an experience that we complained about while we were in, cause we we're just kids. They're like, Oh, I got to go shoot this thing. Oh, yeah, I remember I had to go in the middle of the night. We used to wear pagers back then in the middle of the night. Uh, my pager went off and I was like, oh, 3 AM. What could they possibly need photos of at 3 AM? And they, there was a domestic disturbance in base housing where all the married folks live and it turns out, so I had to get photos of the abuse on one of the spouses. And then also the house, the, the reason for the fight was they were hoarders, <laughs> which is illegal in the military. They were literally hoarders. And the house was just, I don't even want to describe it, but it was, it was not livable. Let's just say that. And I had to document that exiting the house every five minutes to get some air, you know, then go back in and take photos. So but, you know, I, I lived to tell the tale. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good experience all around, you know, kind of kind of getting my feet wet and marinating, as it, as it were, in, in the world of photography and in the world of light and even in the world of customer service, because we were basically a service organization that was shooting for our customers, which were personnel on the base and delivering a final product to them. And if it wasn't right, we'd redo it or do it again, you know, all that, all that stuff. So it was a good time. It sounds like a really great all-round training because you'd be dealing with, you know, portraiture, you know, studio lighting, and then natural light, and then uh, reportage, and all the rest of it. Yeah. So it, it sounds it sounds like it's a really great all-round on-the-job training, actually. Yeah. No. Yeah. It actually was. I think it's better than. And you you mentioned you mentioned OJT or on-the-job training. There's two. There's two back then, and probably the same now, but there's two ways you could become a photographer in the military. Of course, they have to say you're a photographer in basic training, and then you go on that path. But then that path could lead to formal training where there's a, a, a military photo school in Denver, Colorado, or actually Colorado Springs. So you could go there and train to be a photographer for a number of months or whatever. And then from there, you'd be deployed to your final base. Or you could get sent directly to your final base and they give you a stack of what they called CDCs. These were career development courses, right? It was a stack this thick of basically all photography, starting with 
what is a photon all the way through to advanced photographic techniques and, you know, all that stuff. And I, you know, it was basically a, a, a space thing. Like if there was space for another student at the school, they would send you there. If there wasn't, they'd send you directly to your base. They sent me directly to Japan from basic training and gave me the stack of CDCs. And I remember that first one I opened up. I guess, I think the first one, I think I still have those CDCs too. Um, when I opened up that first volume, I remember just sort of falling in love with light because it was it started with explaining what light is and how we still don't understand, you know, some aspects of how light behaves and the properties of light and diffuse versus specular lighting and how, how shadows are formed and, you know, all the speed of light, all this stuff. And I'm like, this is science fiction stuff right up my alley. Right. And I loved it. I was I was kind of in love from from that point forward. I blew through those CDCs. I think they give you like uh, a year to to go through the whole thing. And then you get regular evaluations. I think I went through that whole thing in like three or four months and just sort of knocked it out, you know, because I was leaning into it. I'm like, oh, okay, this next chapter is about, uh, you know, whatever this photographic technique is. And I just go out and do it because we had unlimited unlimited access to any kind of emulsion film or size film that you wanted. We had a, a an equipment locker that was just full of every multiples of every Nikon lens that you could possibly want, including all the bodies and all that. So it was the ideal way to learn photography back then because it was free. You know, you just go, you know, you're you're shooting in your day job, but then you keep your kit with you all the time. It's yours issued to you. So you keep it until you leave the base. And on the weekends, we would go out in Tokyo and take pictures and roam around and do portraits of our girlfriends or whatever, and then go back into the office and process them in our off-duty time and, you know, give people prints and all that, and then go to work on Monday morning. So, yeah, it was it was a really good time. I think it's, that was, the, that was uh, more than anything in terms of my photographic career, the most impactful thing that I've been privileged to do was to join the military and be a photographer in the military. So, you know, thank you, Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever, um, were you ever deployed in like combat situations? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was in during the, I'm going to date myself here. So brace yourself. So I was in active duty during uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, that, that whole debacle. And um, when I joined, when I joined, I was in that CDC window. So I was, they don't deploy you if you're still a student, right? Learning how to do things. So I'm doing my CDCs and shooting and doing my assignments and doing the base level work and processing film that came back from people that were deployed out there. But I never, it was, everything was done by the time I was ready to go, you know, and then I separated by the time there was another conflict, luckily. Uh, but yeah, no, I never, I never deployed into the field, which I'm, I'm happy to say the, and I think, you know, one of, one of the bases I was stationed at was Vandenberg Air Force Base here in California, which is now Vandenberg Space Force Base. Um, I was stationed there and part of that mission was to, and that group is the, the combat camera group is still there, uh, operating under space command. Uh, part of the mission was to document ICBM test launches and Titans and Minuteman and Atlas launches, and we would document them from the air. 
you know, from UH-1 helicopters with doors open and we're hanging out with our feet dangling out of the helicopters, shooting film in the middle of the night. So those those kind of things I, w- I was privileged to do. Um, we, the, the guys in my group were, we always had this, but I want to deploy kind of feeling in our head. You're like, ah, oh, this is great. I love doing all this stuff. But I want to go out there. I want to be, you know, I want to be on the ground and, you know, where all the, the danger is. Uh, retrospect, probably a, I was probably lucky not to be sent out there. But still, you know, part of me wants to uh, wants to have gone out there to do some real combat, combat photojournalism in, you know, actual combat. But, you know, even even then, the photographers that deployed weren't on the front lines. It wasn't wasn't like the movie Full Metal Jacket, for the most part, where you're you're, you're embedded with the frontline Marines that are going in and taking a village or something. It's more like you're documenting the the setup of the installation and the base and the, the, the makeshift temporary runway and, you know, any any kind of event that happens that the Pentagon here needs to know about. That's what we were capturing, you know, and occasionally we go out into the field. But generally speaking, they, you know, the folks that were out there could take photos for themselves if they wanted to anyway. So, yeah, so it was yeah, it's a it's a complex kind of organization. And uh, the mission was basically the same as the mission for a lot of folks today here on the ground. It's, you know, it's take great photos and deliver them to people that need them. That's what we do. Although it's much easier now. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing yeah. everything is digital now anyway, you know, even in the military. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So did your um, your experience in, you know, being a combat photographer in the military, mm-hmm. how did that influence your photography or your, your photography's of career after you, after you left the military? A lot. Um, I think I would credit to, to, you know, who I am today, I think, as a person, as a photographer, as a content creator, you know, as a dad, um, as a friend, as an uncle, you know, all the things. I think the two, aside from my parents, you know, and my being being raised by great parents, the 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 two things that I credit to being most impactful to sort of my worldview and the way that I approach situations today, whether business or personal, have been the military and all the things that I've learned in there, including being exposed to a wide variety of people from different places in the world, different cultures, different religions, different ideologies, but all in one place with a, with a common mission. So that having that is is. Uh, priceless in a lot of ways to have that experience from a Midwestern Illinois kid being kind of exposed to the world. You know, you can't, you can't get that kind of education in a book or in school or on YouTube. And then the other one was my time that the time that I spent at Apple as a product manager on the Aperture and iPhoto team out there um, and understanding how those, that big organization worked and how products are created and the the meticulous attention to detail that everybody for the most part in Apple applies to their work to make sure everything is perfect before it goes out cuz Apple a company like Apple is under intense scrutiny for every single thing that they release even if it's just a web page everything is under just 
an intense amount of scrutiny. If you're, you use a comma instead of a period, there's an article written about it, right? <laughs> so so that that impressed on me just the the importance of attention to detail and dialing things in um, for in for better or for worse in some areas. But you know, all that kind of worked together because on the on the on the Apple side, it was, you know, we had a lot of fanboys out there and people that love the brand and love the products and rely on the products. But on the military side, it's this is the mission, and we are shooting classified photography in a lot of cases that's going eyes only to people way up the chain than I am. So there's that pressure as well to produce something that's, you know, as perfect as you can get it. So not that I'm perfect at all, but there's, there's this, this goal to try to be, uh, as you know, I'm sure everybody has it, but the goal to be, try to be, do a job as well as you can possibly do it and make it as crisp as possible. Which, to be honest, in a lot of ways, that's a detriment too, because in this fast-moving era, you know, this progress. There's the, the whole adage of progress, not perfection. You get caught up in that perfection eddy, and you lose time. You know, whether and when when you could have shipped the thing that you were working on a week ago, you're still trying to make it perfect. So that's a that's a personal demon I continue to deal with. Let's say. <laughs> yeah, that's a difficult balance, actually. You know, this um, the what do they call it? Per, um, paralysis. By analysis. Analysis paralysis. Yes. Yeah, yeah um, that's it. Yeah, I get it's that. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a really difficult thing. And, and of course, you know, whenever you're doing anything creative, like for instance, launching a podcast is a really good example. We've had conversations about that in Off Air. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's this thing where you can quite easily talk your, you can talk yourself out of a really good idea by just focusing on all the obstacles and hurdles, you know, when really all you need to do is really just to get it done, you know? And yeah. sometimes, and I remember, you know, when at the very beginning, when Nick and I were first talking about, um, you know, putting a podcast together, um, I remember at some point I just had this thought that actually done is better than perfect. We just have to get it done. And we just took into account that the first episode was going to be horrendous, which it was, you know, yeah. by yeah. modern standards. But, um, but at the same time, it set us on a path of improvement and getting better and learning, you know, and, and yeah. And so, yeah, so it's, it's a, it really can be, you know, on one hand, it can be hindrance. On the other hand, there's also a danger that you fall, like you, there's a danger to becoming content with the way things are and not necessarily pushing yourself as much. Yes. You know, and that's, that's also something that can happen, obviously, you know, as, as you probably know, because the one thing amongst many things, um, including a screensaver in the back there, <laughs> but you know, one thing that we share, of course, is that we both run, uh, we both run podcasts. And so, you know, we have a lot in common in that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it, it's, it's, um, the whole analysis paralysis thing is real. And what I, what I've, what I've experienced over the years, or the, the way that I manage that is I'm the guy that when I have an idea, I'm going to, I'm going to sketch it out first on paper and kind of think about it. I'm going to research it on web, on the web, on YouTube, social media, whatever. Um, and then I'll start, you know, designing what this thing is going to be. Let's say it's a website or some sort of course or something that I'm going to create. I'll have a flow chart built. I'll have the, you know, I use a, an application uh, called uh, 
what, what is the application that I use? ClickUp. Sorry, there's so many. I use an app called ClickUp, which manages all my different tasks. It manages my life, to be honest with you. But it ma- when, I, when I'm ready to do a, a project, I'll spin up a new area within ClickUp and all the different aspects in lists go in there. Um, but what I've learned over the, the ages is the ages. What I've learned over time is instead of it being a start to finish proposition where, you know, you can't, it's not done until it's completely done, like and ready for, say, Steve Jobs to look at. It's more of a, a it's more of shades of gray from start to finish with little milestones in the middle. My friend Rick Salmon used to tell me, he used to use the adage, um, how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time. And that still hangs true in my head. So I've had this big task and I just chop it up into little milestone pieces. And each one of those pieces, you apply that, you know, perfection. I want it to be perfect too, but, but it's a shorter manageable amount of, of, of the project. Like for example, if I'm going to spin up a new pro, a new podcast, I would break that into pieces and say, okay, well, first, um, Okay, I need to name it. I need to see if there's an audience for that. I need to check out what the competitive landscape looks like for that particular show. And can I add value um, on and on and on, right? And each one of those bits of research or even implementation, like, oh, I need to build a logo for it. I need to figure out where I'm going to host it. You know, all these things, build those up into together, those add up to the elephant. And the way my mind works, say there's like, I don't know, 50 different things that need to get done for a per, for a particular project. My, I work best when I divide them up into like little bits of three. So like today, for example, I have a yellow sticky on my desk with three things that I need to get done to push towards a particular goal. And if I don't get those three things done, I'm a failure in my head. And like if I before I can leave and say I'm done for the day, right, leave my home office or go out for a drive or whatever, I need to tick off these three things. And they may not be big. It may be, you know, email this person to see if you can't set up a meeting, uh, write this blog post and investigate this new text-to-video AI thing and figure out if it makes sense to talk about on the show. Those, those three things. If I knock those out, I feel like I'm a success for the day. And then I move on to the next three, you know. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's manageable, you know, doing a lot of stuff like you and I both, we manage a lot of stuff and spin a lot of plates. So it's very manageable if you divide it into manageable bite-sized pieces. You're looking at it as a whole, like, holy crap, I got to manage this. I'm essentially managing a whole division of Smug Mug right now by myself and I'm booking guests and editing and hosting and, you know, speaking with advertisers and yada, yeah, on and on and on and on. It's a long list. It could look daunting. But if you break it down into smaller pieces that are easily consumed, then it becomes fun again. And that's that's what I do generally on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's, I like that uh, way of thinking because yeah. I've found that by breaking things down into manageable tasks, I've actually learned a lot about myself. Like yeah. I've learned, I've learned that I'm really good at making lists. I'm not very good at completing lists on a day-by-day basis because I've sort of learned that, you know, I have a tendency personally, you know, uh, to cram too many things into one day. Um, My family call it K-time. They, you know, my my wife and my kids continuously tell me that I have no sense of time whatsoever, which, you know, for for a former session musician, that's bad news. But... (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah. So it's you know this thing where I would think in my head I would like I'd be like, oh yeah, I can get that done. Like I have an hour and a half. Yeah, I can get this, this, and this done. And then, of course, I only get one out of those three tasks done because I've completely underestimated the amount of time that it would take me. And that's the one thing yeah. I've learned about myself. And so the way I manage things now is completely differently. I basically, you know, I I set out tasks and I, I sort of prioritize them based on, you know, how important they are. And I know that yeah. I can get three tasks done. You know, that's sort of my average, my daily average. So I basically pick the three most important tasks on that day and I try and get them done. You know, and then yeah, once I, exactly, yeah, and then I move on to the next, the next thing that may be sort of medium of medium importance. You know, it's essentially all the stuff yeah. that stuff that needs to get done today, stuff that um, doesn't really matter whether it happens today or tomorrow. You know, and then stuff. Then the bottom of the list is the kind of stuff that's actually not important at all. The kind of stuff that, even if I didn't do them, it wouldn't be the end of the world. You know, the kind of stuff that I no, that's the, absolutely. Nice Absolutely. Yeah. And the one of the other tricks I'll throw in there, at least this is a this is a mind hack for me, and maybe it'll work for other folks, is uh you know, humans have this 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 innate need to complete things, right? And you when you start something, you feel like you need to complete it. There's a, a bunch of other kind of mental triggers. Um, but one of them is just that need to finish something once you've started it. And I play on that. Like, for example, you know, to trick my own self, like, for example, I need to, I need to reorganize the garage or, you know, clean off this shelf in the garage because it's, it's messy. And I need, I need to, I want to put my car cleaning stuff on there. So I need to clean it out or whatever. Um, instead of saying, and it's a daunting task, right? So the garage is big and there's all this stuff on the side and I got to move this and all that. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'll do it on the weekend. And then the weekend comes, you don't do it, whatever you procrastinate. What the trick is tricking yourself into doing just a little bit of it. Like instead of saying, okay, I got to go out and clean the entire garage. Maybe I'll do it Saturday and then not doing it. You say, you know what? There's one shelf in there that I'm just going to go in and do that one shelf because that is where I've stored this, this, and this. And if I just get that shelf done, I'll feel good about myself. Again, sort of breaking it down. You know, I won't feel like a failure if I get that one shelf done, right? But then when you go in and you do that one shelf and you're in that mode, typically what happens to me is like, oh yeah, that wasn't so bad. Maybe I'll do this shelf. <laughs> and then maybe I'll do this one. Oh, maybe I'll do that. You know, and then you end up, the whole garage is done, you know, and you're looking for the next thing. So if you can, like they say, the 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 first step is always the hardest. I think that's very true because you're if you trick yourself into get, doing a bit of a larger project, it makes the whole project seems seem less daunting because you're now engaged in it and you kind of get a better indication of what you need to do and what needs to get done. Plus, you feel like you've made a little progress already, so why not continue that momentum? So yeah, it's it's a subtle thing that I challenge I challenge your audience to try it. If there's something that you've been putting off, look at it as a a bunch of small bits together or pieces of a larger task and go do one bit of it. Like one just go do one bit of it and see if you can resist doing more after you do that one bit and it's it's very hard to resist doing more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, breaking things down into smaller chunks is is you know, invaluable. There's another technique I use yeah. sometimes, uh, which is, I think it's called time bracketing or something where you basically set yourself mm -hmm. a time limit for a particular task. And so you can literally, you know, take your day and chop it up into like chunks, you know, 
an hour and a half of this, an hour of this, half an hour of that. Um, and mm -hmm. once you hit your your time limit, you basically stop for the day. You basically, it's a hard stop and that's it. And where that works for me really well is with emails because I loathe emails. It's the one thing that I, yeah. I could quite easily live my life without emails at all, you know, but it has to get done. You know, you get to respond to emails and blah, blah, blah. And so what I say to myself, um, I have this, I can't, I can't remember what the, what the app was called. I had like a timer and it basically said you're 25 minutes. And I know that my attention span when it comes to emails is, is 25 minutes. That's it, you know? And then I start, my mind starts to wander off and I need to do other things and blah, blah, blah. So I basically say to myself, okay, you know, I make that the first thing that I do because it's the thing that I loathe the most. So I'll make it the first thing that I do in the morning. And I sit down and I set my time to 25 minutes and I start rattling through emails. And when the timer bleeps, that's it. I'm done with emails. I'm not going to look at emails anymore until maybe later on in the day you know, um, yeah. where I've set up another, another 25 minutes up, or not at all. You know, if, if my work is done, then that's it, but I'm not going to yeah. move on to like, you know, 35 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour of emails, because before you know it, you get sucked into this thing where then before you turn around, it's a bit like TikTok, you know, you start looking at yeah. TikTok, you just go, yeah, yeah. Before I do this, I'm just going to have a quick look at, oh, that's TikTok. Oh, yeah. And then before you know it, the whole afternoon has gone and you're like, oh, yeah. And you just, they, uh, they suck at uh, me again. Break away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Same way. Yeah. No, that, that specifically, you know, and especially for social media, having having that time bracket mentality is golden, right? Because like oh, you yeah. said, you get sucked into that vortex and time is gone. Um, the the hard thing for me for non-social media is like I I really enjoy the stuff that I do, obviously. And I've been doing it for a while. So when you enjoy what you're doing, you want to keep doing more of it, right? So I love learning about like AI and playing around with different prompts and doing all that stuff. But that in and of itself could suck up the whole day, you know, or multiple days if you let it. So yeah, you have to you have to have that willpower to pull away from tasks, even the tasks that you enjoy doing. So not all tasks are negative. Some tasks you, you know, you got to disconnect from them because, you know, they're, they can also suck up time away from the, the main goal. So, oh, yeah. that's so it, this yeah. is like turned into a productivity show. I love this. this I know. This right up my alley. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's, I think that's really valuable, you know, for any, um, first of all, for any creative person, um, but also you're generally, you know, any photographer, because we have to deal with so many different things. Um, and just to bring yeah. this back into like, you know, a photography um, conversation or, you know, into the world of photography, yeah. like one of the things, for instance, um, that I, you know, so one of the things I do is obviously I shoot headshots. So what happens is you've got the extra physical shoot and then you've got the editing part of the, the post-production stage after that. And I, I actually, I really like working in Photoshop. I really like retouching. It's a, it's a thing I love doing. I love doing composites and all that kind of stuff. And I can spend hours and hours and hours getting into something. The problem for me is, is that once I've done the session, once I've shot the session, and the the client leaves in my head that session is done and of course it isn't because there's all the post-production that still needs to happen and so i like my attention span is basically like do you remember that doc in up where it's just like you know squirrel yeah <laughs> you know? and that's you know the minute i open lightroom or photoshop and there's another thing that pops up and i've got like oh yeah that's the shot that i shot like you know, at 2 a.m. in the morning in London with the skyline. Ooh, I need to retouch that. 
And I'm just going to do a little bit on that. And then before you know it, it's like an hour and a half later and I still haven't done a bloody headshot, you know, <laughs> and I'm yeah. still yeah. touching, you know, it's kind of, and that's, that's the thing that I find hardest is to, um, to, to break myself away from the stuff that I, that I love doing, that I really like to do. And to, you yeah. know, sometimes and to focus on the things that I actually have to do because those are the things that, that, that make money. And yeah. I know that about myself and my wife knows that about, about me. And so it, it'll be the very often there's like a little comment that comes from the, from the kitchen. So they goes like, you know, how is that helpful to your business? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. uh, it probably isn't. Let's get on with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's That's like the, the voice of reason. Yeah. That is that is a really good point because you know one of the one of the as solopreneurs one of the the calculations that I think we have to make all the time because opportunities come up all the time and different things that you want to do and work on come up all the time and ideas shiny objects and software and a YouTube video that's explaining this tutorial is explaining this technique that you want to try or the new show that just popped up that just been released on Netflix or something that shows up you want to watch all these different things are coming at you. And one of the, the I think the, the calculation that us solopreneurs have to make is, is it is spending time on this thing, or spending revenue on this thing, or giving this thing my attention? Is it furthering my ultimate goal? Right? And that goal may not be monetary, it may not be, hey, my goal is to make get my business to a $50,000 a month level that it may not be that your goal may be for the year. It may be I want to I want to do like personally, I want to I want to up my public speaking game and do more public speaking and keynote type things. You know, I want to learn and, and edge my way into that space. So I have to ask myself when someone is inviting me to speak at this particular conference, does that further my goal? And should I say no? Or should I say yes? You know, so the art of saying no is, I think, hard for a lot of us, right? It's an opportunity comes in, you have the time to do it. It, it seems kind of interesting, but it may not be in service to your overall goal. The knee-jerk reaction, especially if it's someone you know, like, and trust, is to just say, yes, yes, I will do that. Of course, it's very hard to say no. You know, no, I'm not going to do that, even if you have, to, you have time to do it and you still say no because it's not in service of your, your overall goal. And it's not a hard and fast rule, of course, you know, because we're, we're humans. Um, but you're just kind of keeping in your head that does this help me get to where I want to be? Or should I, is my time better spent doing something else, whether it be something that's for me educationally or furthering the business or even the things that I don't enjoy doing that much? Should I take that time and apply it over there? So that's, I think that's that's something I'm still learning. You know, I don't know if I'll ever master it, but yeah, it's still it's still I envy the people that that no comes easy to. I'm not one of the people that that no comes easy to. Yeah, that's and that's you know that's really valuable advice. And I think especially at the beginning of you know someone's career, um, where you know you you tend to you tend to want to please people and always say yes. And you sort of, you sort of think like, well, you know, whenever somebody asks me to, I don't know, shoot their birthday party, that's an opportunity, or maybe it's, it's an opportunity, you know, um, to promote my services or to get my name out there or to make some money. But what I found, and this is, again, this, you're right. It's a really hard lesson to learn. It's, um, it, it really, it's the ability to say no. 
where I learned that actually was in music, because just like mm. in photography, and I think this is true for all creative arts, by the way, you know, but in music, what happens is when people know that you're a musician and that you play an instrument, um, you get asked to play all the time. Like, you know, to the mm. point where somebody, you know, somebody might go like, oh, hey, do you want to come to my party? Oh, yeah, cool. Thanks, man. You know, yeah, make sure you bring your guitar. Why? Mm. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, so then, you know, you go like, well, if you want me to come to your party to perform, then you don't have a price for that. You yeah. know, that's yeah. like, you know, that's how I make my living. Not that I make my living, but you know what I mean? It's like, you know, you kind of go, well. Well, you're a professional. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's like, okay, well, it's different if somebody asked me to come to their party and I decide that. I want to take my guitar or I'm at the party. There's a guitar in the corner and, you know, everybody said a few drinks and like, we go, okay, well, there's a guitar. Let's go. You know, that's different, mm -hmm. but it's this, you know, um, this sort of expectation just because you're a musician, you must therefore love to play and love to perform to, yeah. to people. And so, you know, and the same thing of course happens in photography where it's like, you know, oh yeah, make sure you bring a camera. Well, okay. Yeah. That's, you know, I get that all the time. I used to get that all the time. I used to get the, um, yeah, it used to just be a, a foregone conclusion. If you invited me, then I'm going to take pictures because I'm always yeah, taking exactly. pictures, you know. So if you invited me to something, I'm going to take pictures and I'll probably send you a gallery link later. And, uh, and then people started abusing it, of course, friends and family, right? They're like, hey, can you do my wedding? You know, and, you know, it, it, with with no expectation of paying you for anything. It's just like, oh, you yeah. know, can you just do it? Because you love doing it. Don't you love photography? This I'm doing you a favor by allowing yeah. you to shoot my wedding for free because you're going to, you know, do the thing yeah. that you enjoy doing. And I had to I had to have a conversation with one friend about that, you know, where they were they were walking down that route. And I was like, you know, would you would you ask a chef? Would you invite a chef to dinner? and expect them to cook, you know, like how, to, exactly. how does that, how does that work? What is that mentality? I mean, what I started doing years ago when that comes in, you know, first of all, the art of saying no, right. That's a, that's another one where, no, I don't, I don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Happy to bring my camera and do a couple snapshots, but I'm not going to, you know, don't count on seeing any of them. I may share them with you, you know, so you set expectations like that. Um, but then if I do go, um, I um sh I make sure to position it as an expensive gift that I'm giving you, right? Because you don't you don't want the word to get out that you'll just do things for free and you know your work is devalued because you're just you know this photographer that will take pictures of anything if asked, right? So instead, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to shoot your wedding the or your event or whatever and here's my normal price. I'll even send them an invoice, you know, with my with my price on it, with the price discounted by a hundred percent and make, you know, the total due is zero. But the whole idea is to let them see, this is what you would have paid had I not gifted this service to you, thereby adding weight to it and diffusing future asks. Cause now if they ask you again, they're like, Oh, Frederick charges this much money. Um, uh, do I really want to ask him to do it for free? That's a lot of money, you know, to ask somebody to just do for. So if you don't do that, then they devalue your work. Then they just think, you know, it's worth yeah, nothing. You, when you put a number yeah, on it, now it has gravity, right? Exactly. And you're forever going to be the chief photographer. You know, that's, that's, that's the other yeah. thing. You know, the one of the things I've, I've also learned the hard way is 
you know, when I, when somebody calls you and asks you to do a particular thing, like in my, in my case, I will get calls, um, you know, about headshots and it's, it's interesting to me really, because my prices are very boldly displayed on my website. There's, there's really no yeah. question over how much I charge. It's, it's very obvious, you know, there's no, nothing's hidden. It's all, it's all, you know, front and center and, um, you know, and that's, that's basically it. And so. Um, I often get calls where people sort of expect a super cheap bottom, you know, bottom end type of like low cost headshot. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. you know, that's not what I do. If that's, if that's what you want, I know a guy and I'm happy yeah. to, to give you his number, you know, um, if that's what you're yeah. looking for yeah. 100%. You know, it's the, the sort of, um, what's the comparison? Like the, so in, in, in the UK, it's, we have different supermarkets, you know, like the cheap supermarkets, like the Aldi's and the Littles, and then the sort mm-hmm. of mid-range ones are called Tesco's over here. I don't know what the equivalent is in the US. Is it Walmart maybe? Or Probably Whole Foods, Whole Foods yeah. here. Yeah. And then you've got the expensive, um, supermarkets like here, they're called like Marks and Spencer's or, or what's it called? Waitrose, mm-hmm. the Waitrose yeah. of, you know, the, the luxury liner where everything's more expensive, you know, um, yeah. but you can feel good about yourself because <laughs> apparently it's healthier just because you're paying more for it. But, <laughs> Electrically you know, assisted shopping carts. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, um, but the, 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 the problem is if you want, you know, if you want to position yourself or you, you want to position your business in a particular range and I'm not, you know, I think if I compare my prices to my local competition, I'm probably more expensive than most of the people around me. Um, but it also means I don't work as much, you know, in other words, I'm not really, I don't have to cram in loads of clients every day or every week. You know, it's, it's actually, it's easier for me to, to service fewer clients, but actually have clients that maybe value the work a little bit more, you know, and that that's what makes that's me right. happier. You know, that's the, that's the, that's yeah. the thing. So I think, and that's important, you know, when you get a phone call and you have somebody on the phone and they want to actually, you know, they want to pay cash money you know, for, for a, for a photo, it's hard to say no, just yeah. because it doesn't fit in with the way you position your business, but it's important to say no, it's really important. Yeah. Um, because yeah. otherwise it's, it's virtually impossible for you to, to stay, you know, on, on that level of business, just like a supermarket. I mean, if, if Waitrose in the UK, you know, if they started selling food at the same prices as, as Tesco's or as little they would never keep their clientele. You know, the audience would shift for them, you know, the customer base yeah. would shift. And so it's, you know, it's important to do that. So that's, you know, the, the art of saying no can be very difficult, especially if somebody wangles, even if it's just a little bit of cash at the end of that and to say like, well, actually yeah. it's not, it doesn't fit in with my plan <laughs> at all. Yeah. And on the, the, it's, it's, it's still, you know, there, even with that, there's a lot of nuance in there too, because, sure. you know, saying no, yeah, we could say, yeah, you know, say no to the, the lower price ones. But if you're in a financial bind and you're you're trying to pay your rent or feed your baby or whatever, you know, saying no on value, you know, on principle because yeah. that's beneath you, it becomes a different kind of, you know, kind of equation oh, on what you can say no to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, of course, you know, if you're, for instance, if you're in a financial bind or if, you know, if you're, 
if what you're doing isn't really working, that may be down to a number of different factors, location being one of them, for example. You know, mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you like, if you live in a, in a big city like London or New York City or something like that, you can really niche down. You can basically say, well, this is the, these are the customers I want to service. And, you know, and, and there's plenty of businesses around, you know, of that type. And it's great. But if you, you know, if you live in a small town or somewhere in the suburbs or like in the, in a small village or something like that, you may have to do a greater variety of things, you know, obviously. Um, and then you have to be honest with yourself and basically say, well, my business model just isn't working here and I need to, I need to shift and I need to change something. And that may mean servicing, um, a different type of, of, of clientele and you know, creating, creating yeah. products that are more attractive to, you know, to, um, to a different range of customers. Absolutely. You know, 100%, but that's yeah. just, that's just part of running a business. I mean, you know, it's a, sure. it's a bit like yeah. yeah, yeah, it's situational. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, just like yeah, same same podcasting. It's uh, it's situational, right? And it depends. You know, we're we're painting broad thirty thousand foot strokes of of decision making and saying no, but the truth lies in in the details, and it's much more nuanced. Like you said, geography based, where you are in business, how talented are you? Can you are you at a position in your career where saying no is even feel feasible? Um, you know, are you at the level where you, you are, you need to start brand positioning? Maybe you're not at that level yet and you just want to, yeah. you know, get some, get some exercise in your trigger finger there. So there, there's a lot of variables that you have to take into account before you can start saying, eh, no, I'm going to take this and not that. Or I want to, yeah. I want to position my brand more as a, you know, Tiffany's or, you know, high end Lexus, Tesla or whatever versus something lower end, you know, so when you're ready to do that, then you, then you start getting into that calculus of saying no. But still, even then, like the 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 family photographer that's being asked to shoot for free all the time, that may make sense when you're learning. Because sure, yeah, I want to shoot your wedding because I need shots for my portfolio. Because when I start charging, I need to show that I know how to shoot weddings. So that's a gift you letting me shoot your wedding because I'm getting something out of it. My my payment is experience shooting the wedding and the photos, assuming they come out great, you know, the photos I can put on my website to hopefully get paying clients later. But if you're already established and this is what you do, you know, like in your case with the headshots, you're already established with this and somebody asks you to down to, to decrease your rate or shoot for free, then it's a whole different conversation at that point yeah. because you're an established professional, right? Yeah. So exactly. And there's, there's two things. I mean, one, you know, I always think like, um, you know, very often, actually, there's a case where I don't charge my full fee, but mm -hmm. I make the decision, you know, so I'm in the driving seat and I, I'll say, you know, for not too long ago, I had a, fr a friend of mine um, who needed headshots because his business wasn't really working out that well. And he just needed to basically, you know, create different images for himself and, you know, and put himself out there on social media and, and so on and so forth. And I, I thought, you know, I can help, I can help him by creating new images. You know, he needs, he's a, in a real estate business basically. And I thought, well, I can, I can help and I'll do that. You know, absolutely no problem. And I know he can't afford my full fee. Absolutely no problem. But he, that's why I'm in the driving seat and I can say, okay, I'm willing to do that. You know, um, there's a, a lot of the time, I think when you're, you know, when you're building a business, um, what happens is that you know, you reach a certain point and then you plateau for a while. And then you're going to have to start thinking, well, how am I going to, how am I going to move this business on? Like, where is, where am I going next? Because I could do this, 
in this way, in exactly the same way for the next 30 years, is that what I want to do? Or do I want to, you know, move this business on? Do I want to, you know, build it and so on? And I remember um, in the olden days, this before I was in photography and uh, I was, you know, obviously I was a musician and for quite a long time, I used to teach guitar lessons. And so I remember moving out of London and moved into um, a little tiny little town about 40 miles outside of London, uh, out in the countryside, beautiful. But of course, I didn't know anybody and I didn't have any students and I needed to figure out how I was going to set up a little teaching practice, right? And so what I did is I got myself an agent and I actually managed to fill up my timetable relatively quickly, like over the course of maybe four months or something, but or six months, let's say, my timetable was full. You know, Monday to Friday and Saturdays even, you know, I basically filled up pretty much every hour I could fill up with students. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, it's like I was, I don't know how old I was, like maybe 26, 27 or something. And I, I thought like, well, I'm not even 30 yet. And I've already kind of maxed out my potential yet. I can't be it. I need to think of something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I did, I did two things. I kind of, I thought, well, okay, I can do two things. I can't take any more students on, so I can increase my prices. And I doubled my prices overnight and I lost half of my students. And I remember my partner at the time went, oh man, that's crazy. You've just lost so many people who can't afford it. And I said like, well, that's true. But what I've actually done is I've capped 50% of my students, but now I have half of the week of free time where I can either book in more students or I can do something else with that time. But I haven't actually lost yes. any money, but what I've gained is time. And Absolutely. of course, I mean, it turned out that the, the students that stayed with me were different students. They were, you know, professionals that could afford, you know, paying more for a lesson and so on. Um, but what it also allowed me to do was to actually start thinking, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my time? And then what I did was I figured, well, you know, if I ever get into a situation again where I can't take on any more students myself, then the logical thing to do then is to is to hire somebody else to teach for me. And so I thought, okay, well, if I hire another guitar teacher to take on some students that I can't take and I manage the whole thing and I take like a management fee or a cut or whatever, you know, um, then if I can do that, then I can also hire a drum teacher and a singing teacher mm. and a keyboard teacher because mm. it really is the same thing. And then you very quickly arrive at the idea of a school because really when you have, when you teach different types of instruments, then you're really in a, you call it a school. And so then I, and then basically I ran a music school for 12 years. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that is great. Right. You know, exactly. And that's really, yeah. And that's really, that was, the, that was exactly the, the thinking, you know, originally. And, and the only thing I had to figure out is really once I decided I was going to set up a music school, the only thing I had to figure out was what kind of school do I want to run? You know? Mm. And I thought, okay, well, I went to a college called MI Musicians Institute, which is a contemporary music school. And I thought, well, I remember when I was a student there, I thought, and I was like 19 or 20, I thought, wouldn't that would have been cool if this thing had existed for when I was like 12, 13 or 14, you know, that would be cool if you could run something that's this serious and professional and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's no reason why you can't adapt that to work for 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds, right? So yeah, when I absolutely. when I came to the point where I decided that I was going to set up a music school, I'd already formed the idea as to what I thought this music school would look like. And so it was relatively easy to then to take that 
principle and then apply that to a younger audience. And then, um, you know, and as a consequence, actually, that, that school blew up. I think within the first year, we had 350 students on board, you know, for that. Wow. Was, and I went from like, I went from literally like just doing it myself to having 16 employees <laughs> within 12 months. That's great. That was just, that was a steep learning curve because it was like, shit, now I need to know about employment and like how all of this stuff on tax, like what, uh-huh. what is that? You know? This is adult stuff. I <laughs> yeah. know. It's like now all of a sudden I'm grown up. What's happened? Um, but I did, yeah. I did that for 12 years and then, um, until I really had enough of that and I had to change, change things over, but yeah, you know, but it's, um, it's this thing where sometimes you know, when, when you start out, when you run a business or you start a business, you know, you get to a point, especially when, when you realize that things are leveling off, you sometimes have to make drastic changes and then being able to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's really important. And it's bloody hard. It is really hard. Yeah, (laughs) it is really hard. Yeah. Because, you know, there's the, there's the conflicting, you know, kitschy sayings. Like one is, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? Which makes sense, right? But then the other one is the definition of insanity, you know, whoever whoever came up with that is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So it's like, yeah. they don't work together. Exactly. Is it try, try again? Or am I insane? Is there a limit to trying yeah. again? And, and anything beyond that limit is insanity? Like, how do I, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So knowing when to quit is the magic part. Yeah. It's, I think it's Albert Einstein who said that <laughs> originally. It's a myth that Albert Einstein said that. Oh, That's the thing. Is. Yeah. Oh, right. okay. I don't think he said that. Yeah. I'm always corrected when I say, yeah, Albert Einstein said no, he didn't say that. Somebody else said. Oh, okay. I don't know. That's interesting. Right. <laughs> but I mean, you know, yeah. but in, in principle, and that's 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 the thing. I think um, you know, it's I think the, the road to success is littered with failure. You know, that's yeah. that's that's usually what happens. And so, you know, every time I think the idea really is that every time you fail, you know, you pick yourself back up, you you um what's the word? You um deconstruct the whole thing, figure out where the problem was. And then try and fix that. And then I guess you can try again with a new plan and like, you know, having fixed the things that have, that have led to the failure. Absolutely. Yeah. Failure, failure. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're in it, it doesn't feel like this, but failure is in a lot of ways a gift, right? Because the, the people that fail at something means they tried to do it and weren't successful for a variety of reasons. So they they have the, the information about why what they attempted was not successful. So when they try again, you know, they cannot repeat those mistakes and maybe be successful the next time or the next time after that. Whereas if you if you haven't tried something and you've only sketched it out and watched videos and dreamed about it and never actually put pen to paper or actually tried to execute on the idea, you will never have the real world experience of what that thing is. Whether it's something simple like, you know, changing the oil on your car. You're like, okay, I read the instructions on how to change the oil. You need this tool and you take that thing off and blah, blah, blah. You know, but until you actually get under the car to do it, you won't have that experience and you won't know what it feels like to actually take that you know, oil filter off or do any of that stuff. You have to walk the walk and fail at it before you can become an expert at it. And that's, that's the, you know, that's the, that's the scary part. And a lot of people, 
You know, and the, the the other piece of it is once you fail is the trying again. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? It's the trying again. A lot of people fail and then give up. And, you know, or I failed at that. I got to go do something else. There's the people that fail, you know, regroup and then try again that are the, the successful ones. And then try again, trying again, right? Like here in Silicon Valley in, in California, the, the startups that are more likely to get funded are the ones that are run by founders that have failed in previous startups, right? So, and the, the VC or the venture capitalists that fund these things are looking, if you come with a brand new idea and you've never failed and you think it's a great idea, they look at the person next to you that has three failed startups behind them with a with a greater admiration than they do for you, the new guy who doesn't have any failures yet, because you still have to build your failures. Yeah. So yeah, it's and counterintuitive, but it's that's the way it works. Yeah, and it's super important in the process. And I tell you what, let's talk about um, this week in folder for for a minute because obviously yeah, I think a lot of people know you as the the host of the this week in photo um, podcast. Yeah. Now, you've been I don't even know how long you've been running this podcast, but it's. Is it nine years or something, or even longer than that? Uh, I think we're in our twelfth or thirteenth year, to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's been a while. It's yeah, I've been running it since I was six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How has um, you know, so running a podcast for such an extended period of time, um, how how does it compare now to when you first started? In other words, what sort of developments? Um, and changes have you gone through with the podcast to arrive where where you are now? Yeah, great question. Um, an uncountable number of changes have happened. Uh, the way that I approach the this whole content creation and podcasting game is it's a game of iteration, and it's a game of constant change and refinement and learning. And every every episode that I do. I learned something, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, even in this one, you know, being a guest on this show, I've learned things. Everything, every time I do something like this, I pick up a little tip or something and apply it to the next one so that I'm continually refining and streamlining and that it's not a linear curve either because there's innovations in camera technology, like the camera I'm using now is not the camera I was using when I started doing this stuff. The microphone, I'm not using this this mic, the same mic that I used in the beginning, the mic arm, the desk, the lighting, the background, everything is in a constant state of how can I make that better? Like, what can I put back there to make it more interesting? Or should I use, you know, different kinds of lighting, a soft box next time? Maybe that's better. You know, there's all these different kinds of iterations that pop up. And my my brain is a, a comes from a place of simplification. Maybe that's Apple in me, but it comes from a place, a place of simplification and doing less or using less stuff to do a, a, a to produce great content. Like, I don't want a room full of studio equipment and black magic rack mounted systems on the wall and, you know, cables hanging from the ceiling and all this. I want a very seem a very uh, serene sort of minimalist environment that just works every time I sit down in it. And that's what I saw for when I'm when I'm doing the podcast. But the the 
the the twip with of the days when twip started what that looked like and the rube goldberg sort of setup that i needed to use <laughs> back then which consisted of multiple computers at one point i had three computers running two mac minis and an imac just to bring in guests and and do screen sharing and portfolio sharing and all that stuff from those days to right now is it polar polar opposite completely different like the, what i'm doing today is the frederick of you know say 10 years ago when i was doing the podcast would have thought today what i'm doing now is science fiction cuz the software that we're using the 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 cameras the everything is completely different and better so when you sign up to, with yourself to become a podcaster it is not a okay i need a mic i need a camera I, you know the computer lighting i got to host it over here and do all those things that's just the starting point it's the starting point in a uh never ending adventure of iteration because when you start your podcast you're going to be doing one thing and a month later you're going to like oh this is great but you know i saw Kirsten's podcast and you know his yeah it's kind of a nice shallow depth of field behind him i need to figure out how to get mine like that right so then you change your camera and lens oh yeah i saw frederick's he had some colored lighting back there. maybe i want to try maybe i'll add some gels behind me you know it goes on and on and on as you iterate and that's part of the fun of it that's not that's not a negative that is the fun of the podcasting world because you're constantly learning new things and trying new things and experimenting and new gear is always coming out new software and cloud-based software or you know all the stuff it's it's all fun if that's the thing that you're into right so you have to make sure that you're into that that kind of iterative uh mentality or or improvement over time mentality and not a i need to buy a podcast in a box course and then i'm done after i finish that cuz i know everything about podcasting after that you won't because next week podcasting will be different <laughs> so you have to yeah, you absolutely. have to be prepared to change right yeah and it's it's also this thing like where my experience is that you know when i first started the the Shake podcast I, it was very simplistic you know it was literally like okay um how can i film myself how can i record my voice and talk to at the time nick you know at the same time um you know via something like zoom right so that was that was basically it. I didn't really think about background or, you know, anything, anything more than that. It's basically just like the basic technical things that I had to figure out. Right. Um, yeah. and then it's so over time, it went from that to, it just got a little bit more elaborate because in the beginning, I think it's always like a matter of like, Ooh, I can add this and that'd be cool. You know, and then I add this yeah. thing Ooh, and that'd be cool. You know, and then before you knew it, it took two hours to set up before we could start recording. Yeah. And I remember yeah. when, you know, when um, when the pandemic got to the point where you could actually be in the same room again, like, you know, Nick and I were trying to make things better all the time. And so we went from a single camera setup to a three camera setup. And I don't even remember how many lights. It was five lights, I think. You know, yeah. and it was just getting crazy. The whole setup was getting crazy. And then yeah. four, five, six months well, probably yeah, four, maybe four months later, we thought like, man, we this like this is a real slog every week. So how can we make it better, but streamline the workflow, you know? And so eventually we got we went back to one camera, and mm -hmm. uh, and actually one light and two background lights or something. So the whole setup mm -hmm. was cut in half. Um, and actually the end result was it looked better because we thought more about the set and how we how we do it. 
Um, you know, and uh, and so it it and then it morphed into eventually, of course, it morphed into the way it is now, where I'm recording in my house. You know, and that's at the moment that is the set. That's what it is at the moment. Yeah. And in six months' time, it might be different because I might either get bored of this and find a different setup, or you know, I've, I've streamlined certain things. And of course, even just you know, meeting you and talking to you about about ecam and you know the way that I remember yeah. we had this conversation um, the first time we we spoke online, and I remember we were talking about how much time it would take us in post-production, like, you know, once we've recorded an episode and how much time it would take to edit. And I remember I, like, I said, oh yeah, I mean, it takes me about three to four hours, you know, all in to, to basically finish off an episode. And, edit. and I remember you saying 20 minutes and that's it. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, what? <laughs> 20 minutes in and out. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, that, and that makes you, that makes you a better podcaster, right? Because yeah. you know, as when, when you know that there's not this mountain of work after you finish creating the content that you then have to slog through to make it great. Uh, yeah. If you know that it's not going to take you that much time, it makes you more willing to book other podcasts and other guests. And then it, it just increases a lot of it. Well, it reduces the stress on you because you're not yeah. doing that three hour slog anymore. Plus it makes you more creative with the, the, the actual recording of the show because you know, yeah, it's going to be, it's pretty much done. When I click stop recording, I just need to do a couple of bits to it and publish. So yeah, it makes it more yeah. fun for me at least. Exactly. Yeah. It, it makes it more fun. It gives you more time um, that you can then use mm -hmm. to do other things. I mean, either you can look after your own well-being, of course, or you can use that time maybe to, you know, promote the podcast more or, you know, yeah. or figure out other things, whatever it may be, you know, but it's, it's this, this thing of like, you sort of, um, I always think, think of it as on one hand, I'm improving the podcast. And on the other hand, I'm streamlining the workflow so that I get more result for less input as it were. You know, exactly. and yeah. it's just yep. the goal is always to get that to that optimum point, you know, where with as little yeah. work as possible, you get an as good result as possible. And that's yeah, that's using technology, right? Yeah, yeah using exactly, technology. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it sounds like using as little work as possible to get more. It sounds like, oh, you're just lazy, whatever. It's not. It's, it's more of your, you're using the, the tools that are available. The, the end result is you want to have impactful conversations in podcasts. You want to have impactful conversations with your guests with as little friction as possible between you and the guest and you and creating a finished episode and getting it to your audience. That's, that's the goal, right? And Absolutely. putting a bunch of cameras and lights and this and switchers and all that stuff, trying to replicate television, I think is, is a non-starter because this isn't television. This is a conversational, more intimate kind of art form. And you, if you lean into that, I think you'll be successful. The cool thing is the tools are evolving every day. Like when I, when I first started podcasting, there was no concept of being able to even record on your iPhone, for example. People are doing full podcasts and YouTube channels now just with an iPhone only. You know, maybe a mic, but just the iPhone. And they look great. They look better than anything I could have created, you know, back in the day. And now we can do it with the phone. So all of this stuff is getting smaller and smaller, which I think is great because it's opening up and becoming more accessible to more people on the one hand, but then also for us, quote, seasoned podcasters, it's reducing clutter on our desks, right? Things, it just gets easier and easier in order, you know, to have these conversations, which I think is a great thing. So, 
You know, there's no, I don't think there's a bad time to jump into podcasting right now. As a lot of people say, oh, it's too late. You know, there's too many podcasts out there or whatever. There's not that many podcasts out there, to be honest with you. And a lot of them are dormant, you know, where people started them and then abandoned them or whatever. So there's a lot of space in the podcasting space for people to, to jump in and try it. And whenever you jump in, you have the advantage of jumping in when technology has advanced advanced to the point when you're jumping in versus all of us that like me 10 years ago i had to put things together with you know, rubber bands bubble gum and paper clips you know to get the thing working and now it's turnkey you know in a lot of cases yeah. in some cases it's just a subscription to like to streamyard or something you just do your show through the browser so yeah yeah it's exactly amazing. And it's, it's interesting because the percentage of um, of podcasts that are actually dormant is extremely high. It's like something like, I don't even know, 85%, 90%. It's really it's a large number. And then, of course, you got to wonder why that is. And it's simply the the effort you have to put in to making an episode like this. You know, three even three years ago, four years ago, before the pandemic, was infinitely, there was infinitely more effort um, involved then than it is now. And, and putting yourself through that week on week on week on week, you know, does take its toll. And so it's not, it's not surprising that the vast majority of podcasts never make it past, what is it, episode seven or something like that? Because yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. It's, you know, it's that repeat effort. And of course, using tools now, I mean, what, the way we're recording now is, you know, it's so different from the way that I record only a few weeks ago, you know, which mm -hmm. it's, to me, it's incredible. That's thanks to you. It, to you and Steve Brazel, I have to say, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. that I've managed to, yeah. you know, to change the workflow. And and it's, you know, it's fantastic. So we're, we're living in a great time for podcasting, actually, is what I always say, you know, where yeah. we have these tools, AI tools we haven't even talked about. And it's a whole show on its own, really. You know, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we have to do another show and talk about that. Yeah, I'm experimenting oh, okay. now with a couple of with a, with a couple of AI tools that you can just give it the URL to a YouTube video and it will crunch it and generate a bunch of shorts for you to post to YouTube or TikTok. Just, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. it's just it's science fiction. Yeah, again, yeah. the few, past me, you know, the me of 10 years ago would have never believed any of this would have been possible, you know, like, in that AI, or that yeah. I'd still be doing this, right? <laughs> so. Exactly. AI audio processing, like how much time does that save, you know? In, in the whole in yeah. the whole process of, of making an episode like this is incredible but yeah Absolutely. that's definitely that's Absolutely. a whole episode um on its own um frederick it's been an absolute delight having you on the show of course and i'm i'm 100 certain that um this wasn't the last time i'm sure we'll have you on um many times yeah. in the future uh, always a great conversation um frederick thank you so much for being on the camera shake podcast today absolutely appreciate it my pleasure. Thank you. It's been an honor coming on. I, and, you know, I, I enjoy being a guest on shows because my days are usually filled with me sitting on that side of the mic and, and asking the questions. It's it's refreshing to have a conversation with someone who, you know, we click, you know, you click with and we have so much in common. And, you know, it, it becomes an effortless, an effortless conversation to just you know, chat about the stuff that we do every day and know, love and, you know, have fun with. So thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed being on. Okay, folks, that's all for today. It's been a long time ambition to have Frederick on the show, and I'm so glad we could make it happen. But before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you'll like. Check out episode 134 with Steve Brazel, where we're talking concert photography, among many more things. I'm sure you'll love it. If you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com 
to help us continue creating and bringing you more exciting episodes. Your support means the world to us. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, be reminded that there's a fully fledged uh, video version over on YouTube in full Technicolor. And uh, all you have to do is follow the link that I'm putting down here somewhere on the screen, unless I forget to do that, that does happen sometimes. Um, and uh, you know, make sure you hit us up on YouTube. Um, make sure you press the like and subscribe button because that helps us being found um, anywhere in the world. So thank you very much for watching and listening and I'll see you again next Thursday. Thank you.